If you'll be turning to Acts chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 11 in just a moment. It's good for us to be able to be together on this first day of the week. We appreciate God's blessings to us in that direction and thankful for the measure of health that we have. We know that there are many who are less fortunate than we in that regard, and, and yet we're mindful of how rich and how good God is in so many ways. We just sang a song about the nature of when we all get to heaven, and certainly it's a rather amazing thought as to what will transpire, the nature of the arrival into that place, the sweetness and blessing that goes with it, and yet at least in some extent what we realize must precede entrance to heaven is the Lord's second coming. And so today, why don't we give some thought to the second coming of our Lord and do so under the banner of the discussion you'll notice on this next slide. You know, during this current calendar year, we have invested one of our sermons of each month looking at one of the particular episodes and matters in the life of our Lord. We looked at His baptism, His temptations, His transfiguration, His burial, His death, and on and on the list went. But today, the last Sunday, at least the last lesson along that series for this year, what about His second coming? What does the Bible reveal about that? One of the things you and I can know is that there are a lot of uncertainties that connect to the features of our life on this earth. We know that. How many times have you known or maybe even experienced it yourself wherein something started the day fine and then before the day was over, there was a development you never could have foreseen? Maybe it was an automobile accident. You got a phone call that someone in the family was exceedingly sick some other development that happened at work, but we all know how the uncertainty of life can often cloud our appreciation and cause us to realize just how uncertain the things of this life can be. One of the things about that, though, that we should ever appreciate to be different is we can always trust in Jesus. We can know for sure that whatever He has said is going to come to pass. Don't you know that that must have been a great light in the life of those apostles when they, even after his death, they remembered what he had said and that it had transpired exactly like he said it would. One of the things you and I can then do today as we approach the second coming of the Lord, one of the features that must rest rather strongly in our mind is the thought that it is going to happen. In fact, the first part of our lesson may in fact develop that a little bit more carefully under the banner of the reality of the second coming. You know, there is a great deal of matter, a great deal of discussion that can be used in surrounding of this point. Our Savior came to this planet. He came with a mission in mind. He came to carry out that which was the will of the Father. He came to bring about the reality of making it possible for sin to be forgiven. You'll notice near the top of that slide, He accomplished the Father's will in that regard. It is true that in that Garden of Gethsemane, He prayed that if it be Thy will, O Father, let this cup pass from Me. But it was not the Father's will that the cup pass. It was the Father's will that He endure that crucifixion, that He in fact subject, subject Himself to it, and He did on the very next morning. He was able to say in John 19.30, It is finished. He had accomplished everything that the Father had intended for Him to do. And with all that being accomplished and completed, 
you and I have given study already in this series to the fact that he was buried, he was resurrected, and in the blessedness of that thought, he has provided great comfort and hope to all of us that we too can look forward to a resurrection. But to think about his second coming is to take us directly to the text before us today. Jesus often spoke about it. After he left, those inspired other writers of the New Testament, they spoke about it. I've asked you to notice you're the part of that slide, the great power of the fact that the Lord ascended back to heaven. He is not here on earth any longer. He's not here physically in the presence of you and me in the flesh. You see, He's currently reigning on God's right hand. He is there in a royal and regal position of authority. But you know, there's coming a time He is going to revisit not to set foot on the planet, mind you, but to revisit, to gather His own, and to set into consideration the affairs that will close out the issues of time and usher in the fullness of eternity. At the bottom of that slide, then, I've asked you to notice that there's a lot of people, a lot of people, who are burdened under the thought, well, it's just been so long. He left nearly 2,000 years ago now. That's a long time. Are you sure he's coming back? How certain are you? Are you absolutely convinced of it? I might point out that there's a lot of people who live their life, and they would perhaps in word tell you he's coming, but they live as though he never will. You go about living day by day, doing what you want, when you want, the way you want, why you want. And may I say, if you believe in the second coming, if you're convinced of it, it will change the way you look at things. It will redirect the approaches you take to the matters of life. And yet there are so many who, again, apparently do not really believe, or at least it doesn't impact their life, that there is going to be a second coming. As you close that slide with me, you see that way of thinking is one that is even mentioned in the Bible. In 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, even the inspired writer Peter pointed out there are those who ask this question, where is the promise of His coming? Now Peter wrote that, and the Lord hadn't even been gone 70 years yet. It's now been almost 2,000. Don't you think many are still in the position? Where is the promise of His coming? All things continue as they were since the beginning of the creation. Nothing is any different. Are you really sure He's coming? It's at that point I might interject then some of the thoughts that begin this next slide. Because as you and I give thought to the second coming, how readily we should race in our mind to give consideration to just a few of the verses that teach it. I have pointed out to you about the middle of that slide that the New Testament teaches in no uncertain terms that the Lord is coming back. There's going to be a second coming. In fact, you would find very few New Testament teachings any more explicit than this one. On average, one verse out of every 25 in the New Testament, one verse out of every 25 assert the reality of the Lord's second coming. That means this is all over the New Testament. It is almost on every page. That being noted, how important it is for us to appreciate those contexts and the lessons that attach to it and the blessing that that thought ought to be to your life and to mine. 
I might well suggest to you then that we'll begin to notice just a few of the verses at least. Could I recall to mind maybe one of the most well-known? It's in that passage that the Lord uttered on the night before He died. So He was about to be crucified, and yet He said this, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And receive you unto Myself, that where I am there you may be also. And so the Lord sought to comfort the hearts of the apostles that evening. They were already under the impression that something was a bit different and matters were becoming challenging. And the Lord said, I'm going to go, but I'm preparing mansions. And if I do that, I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to receive to those who are my own. As we noted earlier in the lesson today, isn't it something to consider then how often Perhaps in future days, those apostles must have thought back on the words of that promise. He's coming back. I want to be ready. And you see, that same kind of thought must cross your mind and mine even today. You'll notice otherwise on that slide. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and following, in the heart of a discussion in which the Thessalonians were a bit troubled about certain matters of the second coming. Paul wrote to them with absolute assurance, For the Lord Himself shall descend with a shout. He didn't say He might, He could. He said He shall do it. And He's going to come with a shout. With the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. There will be a glorious occurrence, a fantastic set of events for those who have lived their life in such a way that they're ready to meet the Lord, oh, what a blessed occasion it'll be. In fact, you might remember with me that the last verse of that chapter read like this, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. This whole discussion of the second coming ought not be a cloud-filled, doom-filled consideration to those that are ready. It should be a height of excitement a height of comfort, a height of jubilation to think about what will transpire. Yet another verse might well be this one. In Revelation 1 verse 7, the inspired writer John pointed out, Then in the last book of the Bible, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him. The one coming is the Lord. And John even testified then and there that every eye, regardless where, that person may then be, will see him. The second coming will not be any kind of secretive event. It's not going to be hidden to a vast majority. It will not be perceived by only a few. Every eye shall see him. And the text even goes on to say, even those that pierced him, those Romans that in fact were a part of the Lord's crucifixion, they're going to know the Lord's second coming. May I say to you, every human being that has ever lived, when the Lord comes, we're going to know it. Everybody's going to appreciate the magnitude of that moment. It will not be hidden, secretive, covered, or concealed to anybody anywhere. That certainly means that when you and I give thought to the multiplied billions that have lived and died, all of them are going to know it. 
Adam is going to know it, and he was the first human being. Moses is going to know it, and he's long since dead. David's going to know it. He's been dead a long time. The point is, all of us are going to know it. The Lord's second coming is that grand of an event. You'll notice furthermore in 1 John 3 verse 2, we learn that on that occasion of the Lord's coming, you and I will be like Him. That is to say, some of the attributes and characteristics that He possessed after His resurrection will be those that shall also be ours. The amazing thing then about the second coming continues to be the certainty of the Bible's description of it, and it is affirmed. The lesson text that was read earlier in Acts chapter 1, may I direct your attention as I read again verses 9 through 11 of the opening chapter of the book of Acts. And when he had spoken these things, that he being Jesus, while they beheld, the they being the apostles, he, that being Jesus, was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. You and I can imagine that the Lord had just described to them and shared with them some amazingly pertinent information, and suddenly He begins to rise off the planet as if gravity no longer had any direct impression upon Him. The next verse then says this, And while they looked steadfastly to, toward heaven as He went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. As the Lord rose higher and higher, greater distance between him and them. They watched as long as they apparently were able to see him, all the way to where finally a cloud received him out of their sight. And the text says, two men in white apparel appeared and stood by them. And they asked this question, verse 11, which also said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? I fully confessed I'd have been gazing too. Had I been there, I would have watched every element and every moment of the Lord's disappearance. I can understand I would have done the same thing. And yet to those apostles, these two ask, Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. That same Jesus, notice, not a different one, not a remade one, not some kind of differing circumstance. This same Jesus that you have seen shall so come in like manner as you have seen Him go. That suggests there's going to come a moment when He will descend out of the reaches beyond our visibility. And He's going to appear. And you appreciate that in verse number 11, when He returns on that occasion... Those two did not say when. I suspect they didn't know when. In fact, other places in the New Testament share with us that critical piece of information as well. But isn't it amazing? They gave the fullest of assurance that He is returning, that He will come back. As you close that slide with me and journey into a few lessons based on some of this, why don't we give thought to this reality of the second coming from a slightly different angle? from a slightly different perspective. Inasmuch as the New Testament teaches of this so often, you and I can well know then how curious the human family can be, how speculation can run rampant, and how thoughts of those who are somewhat scholarly and those who are somewhat motivational can use this to often captivate the minds and the thinking of people.
I wanted to share with you, however, some survey results. You may find this alarming. I hope that you do. In a survey that was taken in 1941, now you and I know that from our perspective is still a pretty good time back. You and I might know that was in some way right before the heyday of the great consideration of proclaiming in direct ways the teaching of the Bible. But in 1941, in a survey that was taken, 27% of various denominational individuals, preachers in particular, did not believe in the Lord's second coming. That was in 1941. Jump forward 20 years to 1961. By this point, you and I know it was really on just the beginning of some of those problems culturally that were to arise in the 1960s. But 99% of seminary students were not convinced of the Lord's second coming. 99%. In a survey taken in 1977, 92% of student preachers denied the future reality of the Lord's second coming. You can well imagine now three to four generations of people then have been educated and schooled and been preached to by people who believe that, who are not convinced the New Testament means what it says when it comes to this subject, who do not believe that Jesus is really coming back, and so their sermons by and large have been directed in circumstances in which the Lord's emphasis is now not on some kind of second coming. I think we're each getting an impression then if that's the kind of thing that has become so prevalent and that's the kind of thing that has been so common, maybe you and I are, ought not be too shocked that the vast majority of people are at least not convinced of it. They live their life from day to day thinking that maybe those verses that do occur are more figurative than anything else that they are to be taken more with an understanding that they are not to be understood literally. But you see, you and I know that the New Testament teaching on this is not that. It is not consistent with this. Aren't you and I thankful for the Bible's straightforward and strong presentation? May I say that those who question or doubt the reality of the Lord's second coming will never ever appreciate the power of the general resurrection. Because remember, the general resurrection will follow the second coming. And if you don't appreciate the second coming, you'll never have the correct understanding of and appreciation of the general resurrection that's going to happen when every grave is going to be emptied, Hades will be emptied. All of that's going to follow the second coming. It might well be in that light. Each of us then ought to have the most surest of confidences and the absolute anchored understanding that the Lord's second coming is real. It is going to take place. It is going to transpire. At this point, you and I know we don't know when. This next slide will lead you to appreciate then some other attributes or at least some additional thoughts as it relates to the second coming of our Lord. Could I point out what is already rather obvious? The second coming is a matter of incredible intrigue. Televangelists speak about it often, those who at least give it some emphasis, but they have so garbled and they have so misdirected the features concerning it. 
they've taken passages of Scripture which do not teach this in the way they teach it, and they build around it an entire speculative scheme filled with sensationalism, filled with that which the Bible does not teach. When will the Lord return? I do not know. And you don't either. But that has not kept men from speculating. And it hasn't kept people from, in fact, writing books portraying that they know. I've listed a few dates. You could have picked any one that you want. The Lord may return on December the 18th, 2023. If you're keeping track, that's next week. He could. None of us know. He could return the 18th of June, 2025. That's about a year and a half from now. We don't know. He might well return the 31st day of July, the year 2427. As you well know, that's just a few hundred years from now. You and I will long since be gone, if that's true, and there will be many generations to follow us between now and then. But it could be that day. But, of course, it could be as far away as the second day of February, Groundhog Day, in the year 814,970. If that's true, that's almost exactly 890,000 years from now. We don't know. We do not know. It could be any of them or any other moment in time. But what we do know is that it has not kept people from writing books, preaching. It hasn't kept folks from making their assessments of when it will be. And sometimes these assessments and assertions have been very strong. I've only listed an exceedingly small number of that one that might have been listed, but I'll at least point out these. Would you look first of all at the declarations of William Miller? You perhaps know of him. He lived in the middle part of the 1800s. From our perspective, a pretty good time ago, admittedly. But he made the absolute assured statement he's coming back in 1843. Coming back in 1843, he even pronounced the date in that year. He didn't come. As is almost always true, Mr. Miller said, I made a miscalculation. I failed to take into account something. He mentioned the international date line and said, I'm sure it's the 22nd day in October, the year 1844. So enamored were the people who heard him preach. The confidence and the elaboration he used, so sure were they in him that many of them quit their jobs, sold their possessions, and climbed the nearest mountain or tree with the hope to see him first. And you know what happened. The 22nd day in October of that year came and went. The Lord didn't. And suddenly Mr. Miller was exceedingly discredited. His followers disbanded him. And quite often that event is still to this day called the Great Disappointment. But you see how people were so gullible. You see how that they were willing to follow a man who directly said what the Bible does not teach. And they believed him. What a disappointment. You and I today, of course, can be so sure that no man knows and that the Bible does not say. But what it does say in regard to this topic is one that you and I must believe with the fullest of confidence. 
Charles Russell. You may know of him too as one of the founding gentlemen of the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and other kinds of religious beliefs that always have had their particular presentations as well. Many dates have been predicted by that group and by those groups. Maybe another one even more recent, Hal Lindsey. You may be familiar with, I suppose, the most famous book he ever wrote, The Late Great Planet Earth. After World War II, you might recall that there was a decision by the international community which permitted the establishment of the nation of Israel, as you and I now recognize it. The establishment of the country of Israel. That happened in 1948. Hal Lindsey said, within one generation of that time, the Lord's going to come. That meant, from his perspective, that it had to be no later than 1988. You and I know that year has now come and gone many years over. Jesus didn't come. Mr. Lindsey was wrong. I might say, as you close that slide with me, there are many things that could be asserted in additional records about this. All the while, why don't we allow the Word of God to do the talking and revisit a few statements found in the Word of God? You see, there are many of these men who are under the illusion that in some place, in some way, the Bible gives indications as to the second coming of the Lord. Now, there are many who will race to books like Ezekiel and Zechariah and Revelation and sometimes even Matthew chapter 24. And they will pinpoint particulars of those and say, there it is. When all the while, may we say, there it is not. The Bible does not tell us. And it gives no indication. From our perspective in mind today, no indication. In fact, on that slide, could we not point out just a few things to draw to a bit of a conclusion this portion of the lesson? In 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 and following, the inspired writer pointed out that this event, the second coming of the Lord, will come, note the certainty, as a thief in the night. A thief in the night. You see, Jesus, as well as the other Bible writers, were quite comfortable with the way thieves operate. They operate by surprise. You see, they come when you're not there. They come at a time that you would not suspect or expect it. Thieves operate, you see, by surprise. We're told the second coming is like that, in the sense that, like a thief in the night. Not only that matter of a thief in the night. Do you recall the assertion that was made in 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 10? The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. You see, not only will the Lord's return by itself be described that way, but at the time of that return, the earth will be consumed. And so too will the material heavens. You see, that concept of a thief in the night really does resonate strongly with what the Word of God teaches. And those are not figurative. They are literal presentations of the nature of the surprise aspect of that second coming. Jesus Himself would say in Matthew 24, verses 36 and following, 
that nobody knows, not even the angels. Can you imagine the degree of secrecy apparently connected to the heavenly realm? Those hosts of angels which are there. Jesus said even they didn't know. Don't you find it almost humorous that angels who are in the presence of God don't know, but yet men on earth suppose they have somehow figured it out? That they have somehow, by some means, ascertained when that event shall take place? It might well be in that connection. Didn't Jesus put it like this in Mark 13, 32? But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except the Father only. At that moment, even Jesus didn't know. Even the Son of God Himself didn't know. I would offer us the thought for each of us to consider how then absurd that makes the appreciation that if Jesus couldn't figure it out from the book of Ezekiel, and if He couldn't figure it out from the book of Zechariah or Daniel, then how do men think that they can? And yet many times, those that you and I may consider they think they figured it out from Daniel or from Ezekiel. And might we point out that if the Lord couldn't, it's unthinkable that it's even there. Who better understands the Scriptures than the Lord did? Who better has a working knowledge of what was taught and the message involved than the Lord did? Surely it is in that light. Some of the closing thoughts on that slide might then be this. The Old Testament, it's 39 books, do not permit us to ascertain the date of the second coming. They just don't. And the 27 New Testament books and all its 260 chapters, that too does not permit us anywhere in any way to figure out the date of the second coming. It just isn't there. The only thing that you and I know in regard to that in terms of time, is what Paul revealed in 2 Thessalonians 2, in which at that moment he said, there must be the coming of the man of sin. But the man of sin has long since come. And that you and I are now on this side of that event, the Lord's second coming could be at any moment, at any time, on any day, at any hour of the day. And when all of that transpires, the great lesson of the Word of God then is certainly the need to be ready, the need to be prepared, the need to be capable and appreciative of watchful for that moment. I think we all know what would happen if the Word of God had ever at any point told us the day. You know what would happen, and I do too. Men would live like the devil until about ten minutes before he comes. That's what they do. And yet, because we don't know, that means every moment of every day is a day of preparation and readiness. And every moment of every day is an opportunity and a certainty in which we need to be ready. In fact, wasn't that the Lord's message? In that very text of Matthew 24... The closing third of that chapter, Jesus pointed out that because nobody knows, the important thing is you be watchful. You always be ready. Certainly that question is in yours and mine. Are you ready? Am I ready? We mustn't live carelessly. We mustn't live in a way 
as if the second coming is not going to happen. Oh, it's true, the second coming may be a long way off in terms of time, but my death or yours could be pretty close. Either way, we have to be ready. How foolish it would be not to be. How foolish it would be not to be ready. In the midst of these current moments, most universities around the world are giving final exams about right now. Perhaps it's happened or perhaps it's this present week. What do you think it would be in terms of wisdom for a student to know exactly what's coming on the exam but to have made no preparation? To not have studied? To not have reviewed the material? To not have given any interest or attention? If they then failed, whose fault would it be? Is it the teachers? Is it their friends? Is it their parents? Is it their family? Whose fault would it be? And the answer is obvious, isn't it? If you and I aren't ready for the second coming, whose fault is it? Could I blame the Lord? Could I blame the Holy Spirit? Could I blame the current administration of our country? Could I blame my parents? Could I blame my family at large? Could I blame my friends and associates? And to answer the latter set of questions is just as easy as to answer the former set. That Jesus Christ has done His part. He pronounced to us not only the plan of salvation, but He, of course, through the Holy Spirit, has testified of it. He's made it available. And you and I know what's required. This very day, if you aren't prepared for the second coming, don't leave this building in that condition, please. Don't allow that state of affairs to continue. For again, the second coming could occur at any moment, or your demise and death could occur at any time. And either way, to risk eternity in hell is too great a risk to consider seriously. When Jesus has made every availability, hanging on a cross, shedding His blood, establishing the church, presenting the gospel, all of it is the message and the needfulness, and the second coming is real. It's going to take place. And Paul assured his, his readers in the New Testament, and by inspiration, all of us as well. This closing slide is merely the conclusion to quickly rediscuss or at least re-mention some of that which we've noted already. The Lord's second coming is a certainty. And though we don't know when, the key idea, the key insistence of the Bible is to be ready. The plan of salvation the Bible does present in such a glorious and joyous way is to believe upon Jesus, upon hearing His message of the gospel, believe it to be true, believe Jesus to be the Son of God, have confidence in the fullest thereof. With that degree of confidence, change your life, turning aside from those things that are sinful, those things that are displeasing to God. Make confession of the name of the Lord that with all your heart you believe Him to be exactly who He said He was. You may recall in Matthew 16, Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the only confession that we would ask, that He would ask. And upon so doing, to be immersed, submerged in water for the remission of your sins. Your sins aren't remitted at belief or at repentance or at confession, but in baptism 
It's what the Bible teaches concerning that remission, and that could take place in just a matter of minutes. May I say that once you come forth from that watery grave of baptism, it's not as though the Christian life is over. That's when it begins. That's when you can use your talents and your abilities and your skills to defend the truth, to work on behalf of the church, to be that strong force for good in the gospel way in your life. And then when finally life is over or when the Lord returns, you'll be ready. May I say that if you become a Christian, though, and are not faithful as of today, won't you make confession of those errors? Won't you, in fact, repent of them and desire to be right with the Lord again? If we could be of help in that way today as well, we'd be honored to do so. As we close this lesson on the second coming of the Lord, what a motivation the second coming is, that you and I would always be prepared for that whenever it shall be. And today, if we could be of assistance in any way, we would invite you to come. While together we stand and while we sing.